0: All right, so um, we're gonna, I'm going to jump right in because I have a lot to cover today. So we are in, if you're brand new with us, we are in the 27th chapter of the Book of Acts. And there's only one more chapter left, which we'll deal with in the beginning of November. Um, and kind of 27 and 28 go together, as you'll see. But the title of today's message is called Wits End. And it's a story of God and Paul, the Apostle Paul, working together to awaken a bunch of hard-hearted sailors, soldiers, and prisoners out at sea. The human heart is full of pride. And God often uses hardships to reduce our pride and to bring us to the beautiful low place Where we can hear his voice and receive his grace. That's kind of the theme of this, as you'll see. This is a story, really. Acts 27 is just an account, a story of a a horrific storm that that they go through. This chapter could be described, at least on the surface, as the worst road trip ever. (laughs) And maybe you've had some bad road trips, right? Where you got a flat tire, you missed a plane, got in an accident. Or maybe you've uh, you know you went to pick up your bags and your bags at the airport were lost the road trip when everything seemed to go wrong and that 's how this story reads. It was supposed to be a simple sail from Caesarea over to Rome, maybe it takes two to three weeks, maybe a month and for experienced sailors, this voyage really should have been easy. Uh, this wasn 't some trek into unknown waters or crossing the Atlantic I mean there was some expanse of water to, to cross, but this wasn't really a big thing. There were forces at work against them. So the way I'm going to go through this chapter is kind of a long chapter, so we'll take it a chunk at a time. Uh, I'll read, I think I broke it into maybe five or six pieces. I'll read a, a section and then we'll uh, make some comments and then read another section make some comments. So I'm going to jump right into verse 1. This is Acts chapter 27, starting in verse 1. And when it was decided that we, just a reminder, when he says we, the writer of the book of Acts is Luke, so Luke was apparently part of this uh, boat trip, okay? This is Luke. So when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, and just a reminder too, the last few chapters, Paul was in court and everybody wants to you know come against him and so he basically appeals to Caesar as a Roman citizen so this is kind of what this is about Paul's being shipped uh taken you know he's in custody he's a prisoner but he's being taken to basically to Italy uh to Rome so uh Should sail for Italy? Because, okay, so they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. This is the guy in charge, basically, of Paul. And embarking in a ship of, I'm not sure how to spell this, say this, but uh, I'm going to say Adramidium. That sounds right. Which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, which is kind of modern-day Turkey. We put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonia from Thessalonica. You might wonder why that detail is in there. This is just a friend, a co-laborer of Paul. So it's just kind of telling us that, hey, Paul wasn't alone on this ship. He had some, well, Luke was there. He had Aristarchus. There were some, there were some brothers that, that were kind of on this journey with Paul as Paul was a prisoner. And so they. Uh, the next day, verse 3, the next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. That's kind of odd. Verse 4, putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee. The lee is just a, kind of a shelter, kind of a way to kind of maybe go along the coast and, or go on one side of the coast uh, to shelter yourself from the wind. Uh, the Lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. Verse 5, when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, That's how I say it, at least. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So it's clear that this voyage was not going smoothly at all. In fact, it's not clear if it was planned, but they, uh, they kind of had a layover, right? They got off of one ship, and they, they got into a, another ship. But you get the impression early on in this story that the centurion named Julius, the one in charge of the prisoners and in charge of Paul, was, was kind of a good and fair man. There's some kind of relationship that Paul had with Julius. I mean, think about this. At one poor Sinai, Julius lets Paul visit friends. That shows an enormous amount of trust. So there was some kind of friendship or at least some kind of relationship between Paul and Julius. But Julius finally gets back on track heading for Rome with his prisoners. Verse 9. Let's read another section here. Verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast, what is he talking about? The Day of Atonement which was really kind of marked the start of the rainy or stormy season, the Day of Atonement, the fast, was already over. Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So this shows how, I think it's interesting, that the Apostle Paul, I mean, who wrote most of the New Testament, right? one of the greatest Christians in all of church history, a man highly educated and full of wisdom is here at this point not listened to. The centurion and those sailing the ship looked at Paul maybe in his prison clothes and chains and they just blew him off. They totally rejected Paul's advice. It says that, this is a quote, the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And honestly, it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, from the centurion's standpoint. I mean, Paul was a prisoner. Paul was a tent maker by trade. Of course, the pilot and owner will know more than Paul. Why should we listen to Paul? Probably the centurion thought. And part of the reason people do not listen to our spiritual advice is because we are essentially nothing to them in certain situations, right? We have no authority. We have no credentials. I mean, who are we to tell people what they should do spiritually? Until they perceive that God is in us and upon us, people around us really will not listen. That's another sermon. Another day. This is just an observation. In times of ease, society puts people in various classes, don't they? A man from one class will not listen to a man from another class. But when hardships and tragedies happen, human beings from different classes often bond. Not always, but it's a trend. It's a trend. I mean, a lot of movies or novels deal with this this exact theme, right? There's something about suffering that can break down walls and bring human beings together. Now, before reading this next section, we have to understand something about God. He controls the wind and the waves. It's hard for us to imagine that things like earthquakes, tornadoes, tsunamis, floods, and so on are orchestrated by God. I mean, how could God be behind such devastation? And what about wars and tragedies and other human suffering? What about diseases and pandemics? What about the Hamas attack on Israel? just this week. I mean, what are we to do with all these things that happen on this planet, right? I mean, we soften the theology of the Bible by saying God allows things to happen. But even the fact that God knew something horrific would happen but did nothing to intervene when he certainly could intervene is a tough thing for us to swallow, yeah? Yeah. But even if we say that random things just happen and God has nothing to do with it, even that is kind of problematic because we believe as Christians, it's kind of basic Christian belief that God is all powerful and God knows all things. Even the best Christians have said at times, God, where were you? How could you let this happen? And the Lord seems to give us permission to groan out these questions. I mean, consider some of the Psalms, right? I mean, just venting frustration at God. Like, why do the wicked prosper? I mean, what is going on? Jeremiah, Jeremiah said, you have deceived me, God. Where are you? Many have said. Job said that. I look to the left and I do not see God. I look to the right and perceive him not. Consider prophets like Habakkuk who asked questions about the justice of God. But the scriptures also make it very clear that God is the God of nature. Consider this, this is one of many verses, but consider this portion from Psalm 107. Verses 23 to 30. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, the wondrous works in the deep. Here it is. For he, God, commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. Here it is again He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. So keep in mind as we continue in Acts 27 that God is the one controlling the wind and the waves. His aim is not to make sure everyone has a smooth ride through life. Yes, the Lord does lavish the earth with all kinds of blessings and kindnesses and mercies and good things that we enjoy. Both the righteous and the wicked enjoy the blessings of God. But the Lord also orchestrates or at least allows all kinds of hardships and afflictions. And I think what we understand is because he is intent on doing whatever it takes to uproot our pride that will take us down to hell. God will spare no amount of pain to bring his creatures low so that they might receive his words and be saved for eternity. It is one of the great themes in scripture that God often employs hardships as his instruments to get us into right relationship with him both people outside of the faith and inside the faith, God will employ hardships. David said in Psalm 119, for example, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Or consider how arrogant and stubborn um, Jonah was when God was calling him to go preach to the people of, of Nineveh. And Jonah was like, yeah, I ain't doing that. You know, and he was just basically took off and went in the opposite direction. But then when he was in the belly of the whale, kind of under the wrath of God, under the judgment of a holy God, wow, he changed his tune, didn't he? And he surrendered. Humans tend to forget God, ignore God when things are, easy, but they cry out to God in times of trouble. And any of you in this room who have walked with God for any length of time kind of know that there is a lot of truth to that statement. I mean, I look back 34 years in my walk with God, and I've I've, had, you know, I could bore you with all the afflictions that I've gone through on all different levels in my life. But I can say with confidence that I have always had the closest companionship with Jesus during my darkest seasons. And if you said to me now, hey, if you could go back and do it all over again, would you like to uh, have many of your afflictions removed? I would say absolutely not because the afflictions have been instrumental in my life to drive me to the depths of God. Now, of course, no affliction is pleasant at the time. They're grievous. First Peter kind of talks about that. Trials are grievous. We don't like them, but they are good for us. Even David said in Psalm 119, it is good for me to be afflicted. So the divine orchestrations of suffering, listen, appear cruel from our short-sighted perspective. But when we begin to fathom the vastness of eternity and the horror of being separated from God in what scripture calls outer darkness, you realize that it is the mercy of God that he spares nothing to shake us from our rebellion. All right, verse 13, let's read this next section. So I just want you to kind of keep all that in mind as we enter into this next portion. It says this, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along creek close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous, I can never say this word, tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along running under the lee of a small island called Caudia, or Cada, We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. So this is, you know, there's a big ship, 276 people on the ship, and then there's this kind of rescue kind of boat. Um, so they tried to uh, basically secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, then fearing that they would run aground on the s- they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. And I don't know all the, the, the nautical uh, you know, mechanics going on here. I'm not, I don't have a lot of experience with this. But suffice to say, they were struggling as sailors to kind of uh, maintain control. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Just get rid of it. Uh, Verse 19, on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us. This is important. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned you can feel the desperation that pounded on them day after day after day no even glimpse of the sun just darkness they were violently storm-tossed it says when you're really out there on the open sea and maybe some of you have been there with the waves pounding on your vessel like a bath toy it's terrifying i mean the ocean is huge I was just standing at the ocean yesterday, just looking out. And I just had almost like a little bit of fear that, that kind of came up. Like, wow, the deep, it can just pull you in. I was imagining myself kayaking on the bay and realizing why wow, it could just be pulled down in a moment. Just one time I experienced this when I was a teenager. And a friend, friend's dad brought us out on a boat. Uh, off the coast of Maine. And I remember we were out there and it just, all of a sudden, it just started getting really windy. And we were quite a ways out there. And I just remember the waves coming so high up, probably, I don't know, I mean, just so high up that you couldn't see the shore, you know, when the wave would, would kind of come up. And I just remember being absolutely frightened. Or maybe you've seen the movie, The Perfect Storm. Wow right? I mean, there's like some some of the cinematography in that, like the, the boat is just this little speck of a thing with these just massive waves. And you realize this thing could swallow up the boat in a second. The sea is powerful and drives even the bravest souls to terror. These men on the ship were sailors. They were soldiers. They were Prisoners, probably tough, 276 men. I'm sure many of them were very proud and self-confident. It made me think of the optimistic, against all odds kind of spirit that you see in Russell Crowe's character in the movie Master and Commander. Just proud through and through. But God brings these tough men to wit's end. The account says all hope of being saved was finally abandoned. Now, if I was an old school Pentecostal preacher, this is the moment that I would be like, <clears throat> that'll preach, right? And I'm just gonna go there just for a second. This is precisely what needs to happen to a proud person because they will, it's the only way that they will turn to God, right? Right? They need to come to the end of themselves, to come to grips with the fact that all their effort, all their good works, all their clever thinking, all their tossing overboard of bad habits will never be enough to save them. A man must come to a place of abandoning all hope of saving himself. And it's in that place of desperation that his ears are open to the voice of the Savior. And on a certain level, that's what happens in the natural, in this story. When things were normal, they didn't listen to Paul. But now, when the sea was about to swallow them up, they are all ears. Doesn't it just make you want to be the kind of person that doesn't need the sea to about to you know swallow us up? It's so, one of the, Best things you can learn to do is to be humble in times of ease and prosperity. Well, verse 21, let's read the next portion. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul, even though they don't listen to Paul, right? But maybe something's going to change here. Paul goes at it again. Paul stood up among them in the middle of this great storm, right? And said, Men! <laughs> I don't know if he should have said this, but man, you should have listened to me. (laughs) I just, that strikes me as funny. And not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. I mean, what could they say at this point? They were like, oh, I know. Yeah, you're right. Yet now I urge you, and Paul is encouraging in this message, I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you. This is a prophecy, isn't it? He's literally prophesying over them right now, even though uh, there's no sign of them that they believe in God or anything. He's just going for it. He's just going for it. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said... I mean, just that's loaded right there, right? What? The God who you worship. What are you t- I don't. We don't believe in that Who Who is this guy? This prisoner coming, giving this prophecy and telling us that he met an angel that gave him a word. But he goes for it. And he said, this is what the angel of God said to me. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. In other words, you're going to make it to Italy. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. I mean, reading in between the lines, you get the idea that Paul was praying for these 275 men, right, on the ship. And here's the answer. God has granted you your request. He's going to keep everybody alive. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Now, verse 27 says, when the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms, a little further, 15 fathoms, and fearing that they might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, now here's, here's Paul again, the tent maker. Probably, you know, with the, uh, I don't think they wore orange, but you know, he's got the, the prison clothes on. Maybe he's in a chain. Paul says, again, he goes for it, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Verse 32 is important. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. They listened to Paul this time. Suddenly Paul's words were making sense. Before they thought Paul was a fool, right? But now they're looking at him who is maybe one who is in touch with God. The God that could perhaps save them. They're listening now. The words of Paul were cutting through. The centurion listens to Paul's instructions to have the men stay on the ship. And I'm sure, listen, I'm sure many of them were like, I don't know if I believe all this. I don't what angels and the God of Paul, whatever. I'm not, I don't even know about these things. But listen, the words of Paul were so full of hope that I think they probably just wanted to believe that this was true, right? And I'm sure also the Holy Spirit was imparting faith into hearts, I mean it's kind of all they had at that point. Verse 33 says, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, I love this because you have to, <laughs> you have to imagine like, I don't know, ninety mile an hour winds. When you read these words and you have to imagine waves crashing against the boat and people are scrambling, doing, you know, you've watched these movies, right? Where all the, everybody has their certain role and is doing all these things. Somehow, like God stops everything. And Paul, Paul urges them all to take food saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food for it will give you strength and not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. In the middle of the storm, Paul decides to have church. Right? I don't know how I don't think it was a long service, but I, I think it's amazing. Actually, it's astounding that Paul was able to, really God, through Paul, was able to capture the attention of 275 people in the midst of blistering winds and waves crashing against them. Verse 39, let's read this next section. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach in which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But, can you picture this in your mind? This boat, just kind of out of control. This is a pretty large, I mean, 276. That's a lot of, this is a, a large vessel. And this thing, verse 41, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. But I love this favor, verse 43, but the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first, make for the land and the rest on planks and pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land, exactly as Paul predicted that the men would be saved and the ship would be lost. What a mess, right? I mean, the ship was totally destroyed, kind of along with maybe their pride too. Some of them were swimming to shore, uh, swimming for their lives just to make it to the land. Some were carried on pieces of wood, humbled. This, This was no easy salvation. God pounded on their pride. They arrive on the shore of Malta, weak, tired, broken, cold, wet, and with a keen sense that somehow God's mercy saved them. They were shaken to the core. Acts 27 doesn't tell us exactly how all this affected the crew, although we do see in chapter 28, you know, there's a continuation of God's work through Paul uh, with these men and with the people who lived in the island of Malta. I want to know how many actually became followers of Jesus, but we don't know. But the story does remind us that God will do whatever it takes to humble the proud in order to save them. Now I want to end by just giving you some, just some reflections on, on all this. Um... I think my reflections, you know, as I reflected on this, it helps me to have a different perspective when I read the daily news. Scripture helps me to understand why humanity experiences so much hardship. And when I start thinking that God is going too far and that I should be God because I would be much more fair and compassionate than God... When I start thinking like that, I remember that I'm not God. And he knows what he's doing and he's uprooting the pride that will send us to hell. And that's no easy thing. And I would caution us here also to realize that some suffering is the natural result of sin. It's still allowed by God, but it's the result of sin. And we also know that Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And some suffering in the world is originated from, say, and again, it's still under the sovereign control of God. God is still allowing it, but there's a complexity to all of this. So it's, I think it's beyond our comprehension why things happen as they do. And before we go off thinking that God is unloving to allow suffering in the world as he does, we should remember that Jesus wept and Jesus was often moved with compassion. And we should remember that God voluntarily became a man and suffered in ways beyond what any human being has ever suffered out of love and desire to save us. We should remember that Christ is the exact representation of God, it says in Hebrews 1, that He was the manifestation of the character of God. We should remember that our sense of justice and compassion that we have, you know, comes from where? It comes from the Creator. God is not double-minded, both cruel and kind. No, he is love. Even his decisions to allow human suffering are motivated by perfect love. Again, he's not concerned merely with our comfort in this life, but is intent on doing whatever he needs to do to save us from perishing eternally. As I reflected on this too, it also makes me tremble, considering my own pride and my own stubborn nature. It puts the fear of God in me. It makes me pray, Lord, keep me humble. May I not provoke your judgments by my pride. May I learn to be humble when things are bad and when things are good. And it makes me realize that all the afflictions I've experienced in my 56 years of living have been orchestrated by God for my good. I mean, I don't like hardships. I don't think any of us like hardships I mentioned 1 Peter before, right? That talks about the trials that we go through, 1 Peter 1, and says that trials can be grievous. They're grievous. We grieve over them. We hate them. We, 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 they're unpleasant to the core at varying levels, right? Depending on the intensity of the trial. But 1 Peter 1 is clear in saying that they are producing something in us. And it even lists out, they are producing praise and honor and glory to God in the next life. Whatever trials may come are allowed by God for my good. All the afflictions are working for me to produce an eternal weight of glory. I'm looking at Mark Skillen. He preached a message years ago. I remember him just, it was like part of, I mean, his messages are like, it's like Bible school packed into 40 minutes. It's so much. But I remember him unpacking at one point uh, Romans 8.28 and saying, you know, God works all things, even the worst things together for our good. That always stuck with me. And, you know, Julie was praying this morning in our prayer time about trust. And it really does come down to trust, that we trust in God, that we trust in the Father. We don't understand everything. We have a lot. We have a lot in scripture to teach us about who God is, But ultimately, we're never gonna figure out everything. There's always gonna be some something that is confusing, something that doesn't make sense, something that we feel is unfair, something that just feels like God isn't quite doing his job. Right? I mean, come on, we're I mean, talk about pride. I mean, this kind of is the irony of it all, that we're, this is the very pride that needs to to be to be leveled. That we're going to put God on trial? And in so many words, we are kind of saying, you know, I would just be such a better God and ruler of the universe. I just know I would. I would be compassionate. I would be merciful. I, would, I wouldn't do this and do that and do this other thing. And listen, you know, like Julie was saying as I was talking with her this morning about this, you know, our perspective is so, it's so small. Right? We're, we're, we're looking at here and now. We're concerned about what's our comfort and our ease or just this little blip of our lifetime, right? We appear for a while, vanish. Like we, it, it, We're all about what seems to be the best for us now. God's perspective is eternal. He's not too concerned about this blip of a life. This thing he calls in the book of James, a mist that appears and vanishes, He is after our safety eternally. And so, yes, from our short-sighted perspective, it does seem almost cruel at times what God seems to orchestrate or allow, but we have to ultimately trust. And again, it goes back to the cross. If you're struggling with Uh, trusting in the character of God stay at the foot of the cross look long and hard at what God has done for this planet if you feel like you know God just isn't good God isn't fair God isn't talk about unfairness the innocent lamb of God slaughtered humiliated naked, ripping his beard out, clubbed over the head, blindfolded, and just smacked, flogged, the skin shred off of his very body. He took the the wrath of God and absorbed that upon himself, crucified. He didn't have to do any of that. You think he didn't know what he was getting into before he decided to create humanity? He knew all this. He knew exactly what he himself was going to have to suffer to save us. So before we're quick to say, well, God is just not a loving God if he allows all these things to happen," look at the cross and look hard and long. Our God is a God of love through and through. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks for listening. Extra quiet in this place today. Man, Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. And Lord, we just acknowledge here that there are things that happen. There are your ways that are kind of beyond our ways that we don't always understand. And and we question things at times. And Lord, I know that you're okay and you give us permission to question. But Lord, sorry if we've crossed lines ever and just, you know, erecting ourselves as you know understanding what real justice might look like and you know you just don't get it god lord forgive us for our pride in that lord we we just remember that we're we're creatures we're made from the dust we've only been here for a few years um we don't know what you know we don't see from your perspective we don't understand everything that you're doing But Lord, what we do see clearly is the cross. And we do see clearly who Jesus was. And we are floored by such love. You demonstrated your love for us in this, that you died for sinners. You died for me. You died for us. And so we celebrate that love. And we trust you in the things that we do not understand. In Jesus' name. Amen. Go talk about it. (laughs) Go think about it. Love you guys.